Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Welcome to episode 497, uh, the best of. It's a repeat episode with Leah McCord. It's from 2011. And it is a good, good episode. I uh, encourage you to continue listening. What the fuck? Uh, I am currently on break. I've taken July off. We'll be back with new episodes in August. Uh, our sponsor for today is BetterHelp.com Online Counseling. If you want to know more about it, I'm a big fan. Go to BetterHelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental part so they know you came from this podcast. And then just fill out a questionnaire. And if they have a counselor that they feel is a good fit for you, they'll match you up with one. And you can experience a free week of counseling to see if online counseling is right for you. And you need to be over 18. If you are between 13 and 17, they'll direct you to teencounseling.com. And uh, they'll... Contact your parents, get consent there, and then from then on, the relationship between the teen and the counselor is completely private, and it satisfies all legal requirements in all 50 states. And uh, without any further ado, here is a replay of the episode with Leah McCord. My interview today with uh, with Leah McCord um, is a, a couple of things I want I want to tell you about it. Um, at the end of the interview, after we wrapped things up, Leah had kind of this this weird look on her face, and I, I said, is something wrong? She said, well, there was something I wanted to talk about, but I, I didn't, I didn't, and let me run it by you, what I wanted to, to say. And so she ran it by me, and I said, that would be great if you would talk about that on the air. So... At the end of, the, of of her interview, you will hear her come back. We pick up the interview again, and it's worth sticking around for because it's very brave what what she shares and and I think profound. And um, I'm just really grateful that that I have guests who are willing to um, 
risk the judgment of other people to share what they believe um, is the truth and is coming from from their heart. And uh, and what she said made total sense to me uh, as well. So um, also, uh, there's a friend of hers that she talks about in the podcast uh, who since passed away, totally unrelated to her story. But because her friend was involved in drugs, um, her family would prefer that the uh, the friend's name wasn't mentioned, so you'll hear me bleep uh, her friend's name throughout the uh, the podcast. Before we get to to the interview with uh, with Leah, uh, as I told you, there's a survey you can take. Uh, it lets me get to know you guys a little bit better, and I, and I go through there and I look at the responses that people have sometimes. And every once in a while, I just feel absolutely compelled to read uh, somebody's responses on on one of the uh, on one of the shows. And so I want to read you. Uh, I just love. This uh, this woman wants to be, uh, her nickname is uh, Porcelain. Um, she's in her 20s. She's a uh, student at NYU. Um, the environment that she was raised in, she writes, totally chaotic. Uh, she says that she is a, uh, a vegan. She does go to therapy, and she says, I have to say my therapist is utterly amazing. Uh, my whole life, people either ignored or were simply too shocked to ever respond to the details of my life. I always love hearing that when I see that somebody is is uh, going to get therapy and 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 it's working for them. Uh, she has ADHD and she takes uh, stimulants for it, and uh, she says that that aggravates her her anxiety. Um, to the question, do you share your feelings with anyone on a regular basis? She writes, um, yes, but I don't know if it helps. I share my feelings because I have this awful habit of never filtering out my thoughts, ever. And I'm pretty sure it offends people a lot. I'm surprised I have new, fr- uh, I'm, I'm surprised I have the few friends that I do. Um, let's see, what else does she say? Uh, what are the most common negative thoughts you have? She writes, I'm always worried that people are just humoring me, that they pretend to be okay with me but in reality think I'm absurdly fucking strange. It's not their opinions that that would frighten me, but the fact that I am just so blind to it, like an autistic retard. I also consistently think I'm huge, that I'm wasting my education, that I'm trying to play with the real smart people, but I'm actually pretty stupid and have only gotten as far as I have in academia on a fluke. Oh, and my overwhelming body hair. I'm constantly loathing how much hair I have for a girl and feel like it just gets worse and worse. I fucking love this woman. Um, Describe any behaviors uh, you wish you didn't engage in, but you do anyway. She writes, biting my nails and eating my skin. I'm not sure what that exactly means, eating your your skin. She writes, uh, digging into my legs with pins and tweezers. Uh, I hear this is something meth addicts do, and my ADHD meds are a form of meth, so makes sense. Also, eating too much, procrastinating. Oh, and sitting on the toilet for hours waiting to poop because I'm not convinced I've pooped all I have for the day and I'm worried that my stomach is still building too much because of all the poop. Oh, my God. I I can never get enough honesty uh, from people like this. Uh, Another uh, behavior that... uh, that she says she uh, she engages in, but uh, but wish she didn't so much. She says uh, masturbating a lot, even though I live with my boyfriend, and obsessively shopping only to return everything the next day. Uh, to the question, does anything cause you to feel ashamed? Uh, she writes, living in New York City, going to NYU, I'm constantly, uh, I'm consistently ashamed that I can't be as thin and toned as everyone around me. I feel like they're all looking at me and thinking that flabby bitch can't exhibit any self-control. How can she possibly be here right now? 
to the question, does anything cause you to feel guilty? She writes, I'm pretty materialistic, especially when I'm feeling pretty antisocial. I shop for clothes, always imagining how beautiful I will look so I can go out in the world again and people will like me. I'm actually a poor college student and I engage in this all the time while my boyfriend is struggling to afford food. Um, does anything cause you to feel angry? She writes, I'm angry that my boyfriend wants to be a woman. I don't care if he ever switches his dick for a vagina, but I want to be the metaphorical girl in the relationship, and I get so mad that he exhibits no sort of chivalry or protectiveness towards me, ever. To the question, if there is a God, what are some of the things you would say to God? She writes, I would thank him for blessing me with more than enough food, clothing, etc., and access to good people and a great education. Then I would apologize for wasting it all. Uh... And then uh, to the question, do you have any comments or suggestions to make the podcast better? She says, uh, I want to thank you actually for this podcast. You launched it on iTunes just as I was hitting a very, very dark place in my life. Uh, it was just awesome to hear about people who were once in that exact place, but were now totally social and usually pretty happy. Inspirational shit never includes the gritty, gross details that your podcast does, and it does wonders for helping me relate. As I've been picking myself up again, it's nice to listen and remember how I felt during the old podcasts and measure my progress. So thanks. Well, uh, Porcelain, uh, I don't know you, uh, but I feel like I know you, and uh, you fucking rock. Hair and all. Everybody yeah. I know is bizarrely, beautifully fucked up in some weird way. I couldn't stand you in the audition. I couldn't stand yeah. you. Yes, yeah. awful. Yeah. I was drunk. And I learned that I could solve my problems. And said. Through violence, since I couldn't communicate. Lonely? Yes. I'm afraid that my genitalia is ugly. That's hurtful. And what was your role in the robbery? I mean, you never knew what you were going home to. I had a jar that had teeth in it. I was a wreck. Other people's teeth? Yeah. Uh, I'm here with, uh, with Leah McCord. And, uh, you know, uh, Leah, one of the great things about uh for me having a terrible memory is uh i'm gonna almost get to hear your story again for the for the first time <laughs> i was watching tv about i guess it would be about six months ago and i was watching this show uh locked up abroad and i saw your story and i was like i would love to get her on the podcast because uh i for one it's an interesting story but two uh, something told me that that there was uh something about your story that made it good for for uh this for this podcast um let's start from from uh the beginning and uh are you comfortable talking about your childhood and sure. stuff you went through and what 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 was your home life like uh grow, growing up it was difficult right. uh i come from a large family and um my father how many kids six mm -hmm. six of us and i'm and the next grew, and you grew up where in Dallas, Houston, Texas, for the most part. We traveled a little bit when I was younger, mm -hmm. but around third grade, we settled down in Texas. Mm -hmm. And my dad was in computers. He was a consultant, so he did a lot of contract work, 1099 work. And um, so when he didn't want to deal with the 1099s and file his taxes, that led to my issues after high school trying to get financing for college. Mm -hmm. But before we get to that, it's probably good to say what put me in a, mind that I was, a mindset that I was willing to make the choice I made at 18 years old. Yeah. And my father grew up in his own broken home, and as a result, the cycle continued with us. I was um, sexually molested from the time I was seven years old, seven or eight years old, until junior high school. 
and he we turned him in multiple times. Your father, my father, yeah. my father, and my mom would you know is Hispanic. My mom's Mexican, and she wanted to keep the family together. It was a sign of failure for herself if she couldn't keep her family unit together. So, in her, you know, I understand her mentality, but she made some poor choices for the safety of us children in 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 an effort to maintain that unit that was fractured from so many levels but so he went he went to jail a couple of times before he was finally sent away for 18 months mm-hmm. and um and we went my sister my brother and I were pulled out of my mom's house for a year to stay with my grandparents in in Dallas Texas and uh and then we came home and dad was still in jail and we went to she took us to see him and then he he came out of jail and he was in an apartment away from the house and she took us to visit him and as soon as the you know unfit mother restrictions on him being there were lifted she had him back in the house and along with the sexual abuse he was you know he was emotionally abusive you know we were stupid and we were spanked we mm-hmm. went to school with long pants on all summer mm-hmm. long so it was you know it was just a not happy and he and mom would fight, and they would wake us up in the middle of the night. Mm. Did the did the abuse end uh, once once he went uh, to to prison? The, the the sexual abuse did that? Yeah, end? yeah, for the most part. I mean, okay, he but, still wanted me to sit on his lap inappropriately. Things like that would happen. I was like, oh, you know. And and mom was. What would you say to him when he would do? I would he, I I would just look at him and I would shake my head no and and sit somewhere else. And you were like seven or eight at that. At that I, point? But when he came out of jail, I was I was. 15, 14. And, and wanted you to sit on his lap at 14 yes. or 15. Wow. Yeah. So he really did not, uh, he didn't really he did not work on himself. He did not try to f- get to the root of he why. He is wicked smart. And yeah. he read the psychology books and knew exactly what to say and what not to say to pass their tests. Like so, what the picture's not supposed to look like. So a master manipulator. Yes, very much so. Yeah. Which we inherited, I think. Which yeah. I would have to catch myself not doing that yeah. to other people. Yeah. Um, That's so good that you're that you're aware of it, though, because most people that were manipulated then in turn learn how to manipulate and that's their blunt tool their coping mechanism but uh, but go ahead so uh so so the that was what was going on so high school i was constantly trying to get him to be proud of me you know despite the other thing i was still my father and i still wanted him to be proud so i was working after school to pay for outfits to be on the dance team and i was on the dance team in high school and i was a honor student and went on the trip with the dance team and went to UT to visit the campus because I wanted to go to UT when I graduated. I had a couple of girlfriends that were going to go. We all took the trip and saw the campus. I mean, I was like, yeah, you should go. Definitely check it out. And when it came time to fill out the financial aid forms, oh, well, we only filed our taxes in the last four or five years, so you're going to have to leave that stuff blank. Well, that doesn't do that me doesn't any help. good. Yeah. <laughs> They're not. They, I can't prove how broke. We're so broke, we can't prove we're broke. So I um, was unable to pay for college, and I'd gotten accepted and still couldn't go. So... Um, my best friend in high school, she had a. She lived a few blocks up the road, but her parents owned that house. We were we always rented. We my parents have never owned a house. They'd never saved money. It was you know so so. She her parents owned this house, and she went on annual vacations like to you know out here and things mm-hmm. like that from Texas. And so, but she was bored. Yeah, you know, everything she ever wanted, she got. She never had to work a day in her life. And uh, one of two children. She probably thought your life was so exciting. She was like, "You've got so much drama." Like she would come and rescue me from the house. Like I would call her upset, and and she, you know, my dad had gone off on me about something, and she would come and just say, "I'm taking you out of here. You're 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 coming with me." And we would go hang out at her in her bedroom, and and it what freaked me out. Was in the morning, she would get up and she'd have her little tank top and underwear on, and she'd walk down the hall to go to the bathroom with her dad at the house, and I was like, 
hey, aren't you gonna put some clothes on? And she goes, it's my dad. I said, right, right. That's oh. normal. <laughs> that's supposed to be oh, okay. That's so sad. So it really, it was just, it was, I realized that that's, I guess, not everybody's experience. And actually when I was in... And what was your friend's name? Um... Oh, you don't have to say if you don't. Yeah, I'd comfortable. rather not. Okay. Her, her yeah, sister yeah. didn't want me to mention okay. her anymore. She's no passed since I yeah. got back. So, okay. um, so I, uh, it just, it was one, it was moments like that that hit me. And so when, when I didn't get into college, she says, "Well, you know what? Let's just move out." She says, "I made you were both eighteen. We can move out and get an apartment." And she had no desire to go to college. She was ready to put it off for a year. I see. She could. She was could. She wait. kind of a party girl, or um, when we went out. To parties like the high schools, you know, the yeah. drama team. I was all about drama in high school. Yeah. So we went to the senior cast party, and she would get she would be the one that would get drunk and be smoking and start clinging to the really unattractive guy, and I was constantly pulling her off. And okay, now it's time to go home, and would drive her home. So we, you know, I would get silly too. And when I was a bad night, she took me out, and I got really, really drunk and blacked out, and apparently danced on the table at the male strip joint downtown Houston and just and but I apparently you know I needed it she like let me just you know cut loose and then she drove me home and took care of me that day oh actually she left me in her lawn I passed out on her grass she just let me sleep there but but I was that was by she was by my my kind of my anchor you know I would go to her and so when we moved out she we had started modeling lingerie outfits and doing a little raffle contests at you know hotel lounges and a couple little bars down in Galveston and so um I had a you know 18 years old of course you have a cute figure I mean who didn't mm-hmm. look cute at 18 so um I did well at the crappiest places because mm-hmm. I just was happy go lucky la 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 yeah la, look at the mm-hmm. it so but I hated it I mean it was just that had to have been so painful for somebody who was objectified their whole childhood it was it's a weird it's a weird thing I think anybody who's been through childhood um, molestation can tell you it's it's a weird thing you want to be cute you really want to be cute and, and, and recognized and appreciated but then at the same time you hate yourself for being for thinking about that and suddenly it's a bad thing yeah it's like you discover your power it's a power that you hate having but it's power nonetheless right and it's yeah. like is that what you like about me now is that all that people like about me because I mean it, I, <laughs> I went on I went on binge on Facebook one night if anyone else tells me I am sexy I'm gonna slap them because I need more than sexy at yeah. this point. <laughs> and you know what? A lot of men, I think, don't understand that. Um, yes, women want to be attractive, but they they want to be more than that. They 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 want to be recognized for their for their intelligence or their empathy or their sense of humor or something else. It's great to have the attractive thrown in as icing on the cake, but right. I think very few people want that to be the most important thing about them because it's going to change. You're going to you're going to get exactly. to, you're going to get old, and that's not going to be there forever. Right. The thing right. I love about you most is disappearing every day. <laughs> exactly. You know who wants to hear that? Diminishing as yeah. we speak. Yeah. So um so so that was so that was something I was doing after high school, and I didn't. I didn't like it, and I wanted to be. And I would see the commercials on TV. Now this is really cute. It makes me laugh to think about it. Because, but there was the Bradford Business School, and it would show the girl like in her jeans and t-shirt, and she's all bored, and you know, she, but she wants to do better. And then she goes to the Bradford Business School, and she comes out in this executive suit with a briefcase, and they this little like she's going places. She's a Bradford grad, and they had you know, and there, my big dream was to have the money to go and become an executive assistant. After graduating from Bradford Business School for you know yeah. executive assistance, yeah. I wanted a briefcase. I wanted a suit and some little pumps. And so I went to the Bradford School, and they said it's eight thousand dollars. And I was like, oh my gosh. Okay, well we'll see. And then I went back, and I didn't. Of course, I didn't have 
two pennies to rub together. We were barely, making, barely paying our rent at this new apartment. So I said, well, I'm going to start waitressing at this strip club. I was like, oh, I could do that. You know, I've always had a fairly big top section. So I was like, I should be able to get good tips if I go and waitress at the strip joint. Mm-hmm. So I went in to talk to the guy and he goes, um, honey, with all of that, you are not waitressing. You're going to be on my stage or you're not working here. And I don't know if he thought that was going to convince me. Like, well, okay, then make me a star. Right. No, I was like, well, then I'm not working here because yeah. this is not going on display. Yeah. So I was stuck once again, not being able to keep up with Bill now, with now, her making money. Uh, now, just just let me stop you for a second. What is in your mind? What was the difference between doing the lingerie modeling and and being in a strip club? It was just there was a line somewhere between there that you just weren't comfortable crossing. Well, I, we always wore tights underneath the lingerie, and we were never topless. Oh, oh okay. Yeah. So, and it it wasn't it wasn't today's lingerie. It was, okay. It was, it was you know, nineteen ninety. Well, yeah. Lingerie I, I suppose the, also because it was in a, a lot more open. And it was in a hotel uh, lobby, which is certainly and it was different. Dark yeah. and I gotcha. Yeah. I gotcha. Yeah. So it was not. Um, I was not naked. It was creepy, classy. It was creepy, classy. <laughs> exactly. It was a tickety tack yeah. classy, and so. Uh, I I wasn't going to strip. I was not going to be taking my clothes off for money. I couldn't do it. It was just not something I was comfortable doing. So I said, no, I'm not going to do that. And then while she was working there, she met this one of the customers there was uh, an importer, exporter, quote unquote. And he said, you know, you're really special. You're very smart. You you shouldn't be wasting yourself here. You know, you should work for me. And she's like, well, well, doing what? And he says, well, I could get you a job. You could export some stuff from, import some stuff for me from Bulgaria. And uh, a week, week and a half, you'd make 10000 bucks cash. And you could do that as often as you wanted. So she was like, well, okay, sure. So she comes home and she's like, yeah, Leo, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I met this guy. It's going to be great. I'm going to Sofia, Bulgaria. Can you believe it? And I said, whoa, are you sure it's going to be okay? And she says, yeah, it's like diamonds. No big deal. So she went to Bulgaria. She calls me. She's staying at this fabulous five-star hotel. She went on a tour and she's, you know, it's so crazy here. It's so different because, you know, in Texas, it's no joke. Texas knows about Texas. There's not Amer- not Texas America, and then there's everything else. It really is like its own separate country. We really we really yeah. barely care yeah. about anything. Other than yeah. that. So Bulgaria was, it could have been China, it could have been Mongolia. It was all, you know, not not Texas. Where's the mall, y'all? <laughs> Where's the McDonald's, y'all? <laughs> so she comes back, and sure enough, she's got cash. You know, he gave it to her in like 20s. She flew into Atlanta. Mm-hmm. made her delivery at some motel and then got on the plane and came to Houston and she's got money in her chest, money in her shoes, money in her s- lined al- along the edges of the suitcase so she didn't have to claim the $10,000. Sure. And uh, I was like, oh my God, all I need is 8000 and I can go to school. And for like 1000 bucks, I could get a piece of crap car because I didn't have my own car. Like I, mm-hmm. She was my ride. She was everything. So like, and then I'd have a little bit of money left over to help mom pay some bills. So I said, well, all right, I want to talk to this guy. You know, Bulgaria sounds exciting, you know. And so she took me to, uh, we went to this, like, Olive Garden, big fancy place. And we meet this guy, and he's a black gentleman. He's wearing a suit. He's got kind of a British accent with his, uh, when his, and then he speaks. And he says, wow, you really are. You're everything she said. You're very special. I'm like, you know, and I think back, you corn. How corny is that? You know, right. of course, at, at 18, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Yes, of course I'm special. Yes. Look at me. Yes. And he says, you know, I am. Um, I really think that this this would be a really good opportunity for you. You, um, however, for you, I'm thinking we should probably send you somewhere 
a little different with your look, you should probably go to like thinking Bangladesh. And I, I was like, excuse me? What's a, a Bangla what? <laughs> and he says, Bangladesh. It's in India. And I said, India? Wow. Like with elephants and stuff? And he said, <laughs> yeah. I said, okay, well, what? You know, give me some details here. What am I traking? What What are we yeah. transporting? And he says, well, it's actually, I said, she said it's like gold or diamond or something. And well, he goes, not exactly. He goes, it's worth more than its weight in gold, though. And I said, well, what? And he says, well, it's actually, it's like lip syncing. He goes, it's, it's just, it's heroin. And I literally jumped out of my chair. You couldn't have got, you made a little, little fire under my seat, like I said on the, on the show. I said, you know, what? Because we had a friend in high school, that his, his brother committed suicide. And then he would write poems about how hurt he was at losing his brother because his brother got messed up on pills and he killed himself. Well, then he proceeded to get messed up on pills and killed himself. And we went to his funeral and his father, having lost both of his sons, stood up in front of the, the church and said, please make a promise to me, all of you students, that you will not ever have anything to do with drugs. I don't want any other parents to ever have to suffer this. So we made this pact. Like, we all held hands and made a pact that we were not going to do anything with drugs. And so I looked at him and I said, is that what you did? <laughs> she mm -hmm. says, calm down, Leah, sit down. Shh. You're freaking out. Relax. And I said, I'm sorry. I won't do it. I said, I am not bringing drugs, heroin, into this country. I have little brothers. There's just no way. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, I appreciate that. I respect that. That's, there's, that's, totally, that's totally understandable. Cindy, she's got, she's got a point totally pandering to me and sure. says, what if I had you take it to Switzerland? It's practically legal there. You know, Reader's Digest had just done a thing on Needle Park, which I had actually read. Mm -hmm. And so um, he says, I said, Switzerland. Well, we do have Needle Park. And he goes, you know what? I will give you twice as much. He goes, you want to help your mom out, right? You want to pay some bills for your mom and you want to go to college. He goes, I'll give you twice as much as I gave her. She's going to be doing something really big for me. And I said, 20 thousand dollars and this is in what year 1991 yeah well 92 was january of 92 yeah. and i was like Whew. all right okay i'll do it but just this one time and i'm not bringing it here and he goes no 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 you don't have to bring it here no problem so and then he said and whatever you do don't rent midnight express <laughs> yeah exactly he's like if you've ever heard no I was so naive. I was thinking I'm going to see elephants and it'll be like an adventure. It'll be a jungle. I was like excited. And uh, I got there. When I got off that plane, I had never left America. Like we drove down to Mexico, I think, once when I was younger to see my, my mom's grandparents and something. I was like, but we never flew anywhere out of the country. I had no expect, no idea what to expect mm -hmm. and didn't like embassy. The American embassy, you're supposed to check in. I had no idea. So I get out of the, the airport and there's... They have this system where all the rickshaw drivers come up and they try and help you because it's money. They're all trying to make their money. And they're like, excuse me, madam, help you, madam, help you, madam. And they're grabbing at my suitcase and they're very, the whole personal space thing we have in America, non-existent over there. Mm -hmm. And they don't smell very good. <laughs> so I was yeah. just like, whoa, it was accosted with noise and smells and the language I didn't understand and their accent was funky. And there was a, I found out later it was a plant. This guy, this cab driver came and walked through and he says, excuse me, would you like some help? Perfect British accent. And I was like, oh, Yes. He goes, I will take you to a, to a hotel. Come with me. And so he took me to a, a guest house that was crappy. And then I decided I wanted to spend my last couple of days on my visa waiting for the dude at the fancy hotel. Went to the fancy hotel and uh, checked in. It was five stars. And 
And you you pay for the stay in the fancy well, hotel? They, they, he gave me some spending cash. He I gave see. me like a fifteen hundred dollars, which mm-hmm. was to cover the hotel, the the taxi, and my food and everything. This episode is sponsored by When Breath Becomes Air. When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi is the exquisitely observed memoir of an idealistic young neurosurgeon attempting to answer the question, what makes a life worth living, as he deals with his own terminal cancer diagnosis. It's a stunning reminder to live while we are alive, a must-read for anyone in medicine from a doctor-turned-patient. For healthcare workers, expand your view on patient care and the fragile beauty of our mortal lives through Kalanithi's unforgettable words. Some of the questions Kalanithi wrestles with in this book include, what makes life worth living in the face of death? What do you do when the future flattens out into a perpetual present? When the future is no longer a ladder towards your goals in life? What does it mean to have a child, to nurture a new life as another fades away? When Breath Becomes Air is a number one New York Times bestseller, Pulitzer Prize finalist, and named one of the best books of the year by the New York Times Book Review, People, NPR, The Washington Post, Slate, and more. When Breath Becomes Air is available wherever books are sold. Learn more at prh.com slash breath. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And of course, I didn't go to the cheap places for food because I was American. I went wherever they had dollar symbols, like dollars accepted. Like, yes, okay. <laughs> I didn't exchange my money until much later. Um, someone said, get some taco. It's a lot cheaper if you use taco. And I said, oh, oh, okay, yeah, sure. They probably have different money here. I mean, just completely ignorant. I mean, it's for all the studying I did and for all the honors student I was in high school, it just I had no no training or education of what to expect overseas. Yeah. So um, let me skip ahead. Stayed there. Had I had you know I thought I was having fun. Got sick. Had to stay a couple extra days, which worked out for them because the guy bringing the drugs was uh, delayed. And then uh, had a really scary experience. I was going to run away. Mm-hmm. The guy was late bringing me the drugs. It was the day I was supposed to leave. It was the last day of my visa, and I was like, you know what? I am going to escape. Like, I'm not going to do this. I don't want to miss my flight. I've been just, I'm just getting freaked out. So um, the hotel had a policy where you check in your luggage when you check in. And then once you pay the bill, they give you this little coin thing that says your bill's paid. And then the bellboy will take the coin and escort, take your luggage out. So you're not supposed to run off without paying your bill. Right. Well, I was planning to do just that because I didn't have enough money to pay the bill. I'd stayed too many days at the fancy hotel. Mm. So I took my suitcase and I, like, sneak out of my room into the stairwell. I think I'm just going to go down and go out like the service desk, service mm-hmm. entrance, you know, I'll just sneak out. Well, I run, schlepping this suitcase full of all these roses that I got because someone at the hotel was offensive and he well, apologized for giving me a bunch of roses. Mm-hmm. And uh, I look, that's the first time anybody's ever giving me roses. It's, I'm going to keep all of them. So I'm running down the stairs with this suitcase full of flowers and stuff and I get to the bottom finally panting. And I open the door thinking it's going to be like the kitchen or, you know, some service area. And it is the middle of the lobby, Mm -hmm. (laughs) like in the middle of all of the glorious mirrors. And everyone's like, oh, crap. (laughs) So I was like, well, maybe I just get my head down 
and just kind of go. You know, so mm-hmm. I pull my suitcase out and I'm trying to just, you know, walk. And of course, all the bellboys looking for their tip money. This is their livelihood. Throng to me. Oh, can I help you, madam? Ma'am, can I help you? You help with your bags? And I was like, uh, no, no, I've got it. Where's your coin? We will carry your bags. I was like, no, 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 I've got it. I'm going to carry them. Where's my coin? Crap. And as this is all happening, the, the guy, Tony, that was bringing me the drugs shows up. And he is a very scary person. He's not Mr. Rico Suave that I met in Texas. He is intense. He's very hardcore. And, uh, and he spotted me. And I was like, man. He came across and he was like, where are you going? And he grabbed my passport out of my hand. And he goes, you're not running away. Here's your money. Go pay your bill. Meet me out front. So I go out. I go to pay my bill. And they're like watching. Are you okay? Are you okay? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. I was raised at home that we didn't tell what my dad was doing abusing us because the authorities aren't going to help you. So I had this just mechanism and like, you know, someone asks, when someone asks you if you're okay, you just say yes. Right. You can't trust them to do anything. So I didn't go to counselors at school when I was being abused because they would break up the family and I didn't tell the people at the desk I'm being coerced. Right. You know, so many things that a normal child I think would have registered and would have reacted differently because of what I went through. I just kind of head down, took my punishment, Mm -hmm. thinking that that's what I had to do. And so I did. I I got to the rickshaw, and he was mad. And and I don't like anybody being upset at me. That's just my mentality from forever. So even though he's a criminal, Mm -hmm. I I still don't want him mad at me for some reason. Like, that matters. So um, we went to his his guest house, which was the same guest house I'd been dropped off at, which was how I knew that that Mm -hmm. cab driver was a plant. I was supposed to actually be there, and it would have been a lot easier, which is part of why he was annoyed. But, um, so he wanted to put them in my suitcase, the packages, but I had all these flowers and two big metal vases that they had come in. They were taking up a significant chunk of space. Mm-hmm. And he says, uh, you can't take these or it's not going to fit. I'm throwing these away. And I was like, this is the moment that I got some gumption. <laughs> Worst moment was at this moment. I said, you know what? No, I am keeping those roses. You cannot tell me I have to throw them away. I'm keeping them. They're mine. They're staying. <laughs> because... All right, fine. Then you're going to have to wear the product. And I said, okay, fine, I will. <laughs> you know, at this mm-hmm. point, that was the worst thing I could have done. If it's in your suitcase, you have some plausible deniability. There's so many reasons not to do that. Right. But I, I decided <laughs> to fight for my roses. And wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. I know, it's terrible. But uh, so I put on this horrible girdle. And these packages of of the heroin were wrapped in coffee grounds and sprayed with opium perfume to kind of throw off the dogs. It was just... Hold on for one second. Do you think there's a significance in the fact that those roses meant so much to you that you were willing to make this mission more dangerous? That that, that someone's expression of you being special to them was so profound and important to you. Right. That it's it colored true. that it colored the logistics of you doing this thing. What did what did those flowers make? Who had given you these these flowers? The marketing guy from the hotel had asked me out to dinner and we went to dinner and on the way back from dinner he behaved inappropriately because I was an American woman traveling on my own and he just had a set expectation. Right. And you know, went to smell my hair and put his like burying his face in my neck and I pushed him out and mm-hmm. was like, get away from me. Don't ever come near me. And uh, he was mortified. Yeah, I, I guess it, it meant a lot to me. I didn't, you know, no one had... Uh, Nobody had ever done that for you. <laughs> yeah, dad certainly didn't do that. 
yeah. for all of, for all of the stuff that he did. Uh, he never, I never got roses from dad. <laughs> I didn't get any apologies from dad. Wow. So, uh, I mean, he said he's sorry, but then he's recanted. You know, he he goes back and forth His defending actions, himself, and yeah. and so. Um, it, it sounds like your dad's actions always undermined anything that he had to say. Right. I mean, and and now that he's you know he's sixty some years old and he's had a stroke and I mean a heart attack and I'm. I'm in contact with him, and we've reached, you know, I forgive him. I wouldn't have my children around him alone, but I, I still talk to him. He's my father, and yeah. I get where he was coming from. I kind of know, I know why he he's broken. Sick, he was a sick person. Yeah, I realize yeah. he's broken. We're all broken in our own way, and he's yeah. he's come a long way. So, yeah. But, um, but yeah, so that was a big, yeah, I guess it was kind of, it was weird that I decided to fight for those. And I, I had sworn I wasn't, and I think it was meant to be. Yeah. That I wore it, and actually, you know, I when I went through security, actually, they were body searching, and I and I got caught. Yeah, and so that was I was arrested trying to smuggle the and heroin. Did you know that the the uh, drug smuggling penalties were stiff in Bangladesh? I had no idea. Yeah. I had no clue. I'm sure the guy didn't tell you. Oh, yeah, he doesn't tell you if you get caught, this was yeah. going to happen. No, the guy in the rickshaw tells me, "Look, don't get any ideas. Don't think you're going to go throw the stuff away." He says, "We're watching you." Right. And uh, and my friends was back home and and I knew he knew they knew where she was and I didn't want to put her in any danger and so I was like I'm just going to go through with it you know Whew, suck it up I can do this and so um they had been tipped off at the airport and the DEA when I spoke to them later on they suspected that there was an even larger shipment in some kind of box or like a bag full of heroin going behind me but you know we don't know for sure the uh, Bangladeshi uh, DEA or the, the American, Amer- American, the American D- DEA. so they were working in in concert with the with with each other they they came to see me after I was arrested uh-huh. when I was in jail. They came to talk to me. They called me. The one guy called me sly. He was very sly. Yeah. Like, I'm not sly. I don't like that adjective. And he kept yeah. using it. I think it was like one of those things to like get me to keep so talking. Was the American DEA on your side after you got arrested? Were they on your side because they wanted to use you to help bust this larger ring? Had they? Had they tried. They, had they been aware of your complicity in this even before you were arrested? No, they had not been aware. Okay. So they found out, um, when the embassy found out, and they, it all got reported out up the chain through customs and everything, I guess, the DEA guys came to talk to me. And I was happy to tell them all that that's like, there's a girl that's in Switzerland waiting for me. <laughs> She's going to fly back home empty-handed. Sure. Um, I said, these, these people, there's at least a chance that, that you're going to... Get your story heard and and be able to go home. I was like, you know, can I testify against the guy in the states? I mean, they looked for him and they actually reached out to my friend to see if she could tell them, you know, give him, give them her the contact information. And of course, she was, I'm sure, threatened and scared out of her wits and denied everything. Didn't sure. know where I was. Didn't know what I was talking about. And um, and so they couldn't find him. Like they were looking around Houston, like they went into the woody woodlands areas looking for him to be hiding out, and they could not find this person. So um, someone asked me once, are you afraid he's going to find you? And I said, no, I really don't ever think about him. But um, so the, the D- I did try and cooperate. I told them as much as I could. And uh, I thought for sure that they were going to fly me home. But they didn't have, and I don't know that we do even now, but they didn't have an exchange agreement to where you can bring the American prisoner back and put, us in an, put me in an American jail, which actually would have been worse. I think being an American in a Bangladesh prison was really a, not a bad. I mean, it wasn't nice, but it was better than being an American in an American prison. Wait, wait, hold on. Being in a Bangladeshi prison was nicer than being in an American prison for treatment-wise, not necessarily the accommodations. I mean, it was hot. There was right. no air conditioning. There was no heat. I mean, it was right. tropical weather. And but I had a position of esteem 
with them. I had a separate cell away from the other prisoners. I see, because you were from another country right. or specifically America. Uh, they treated Western Westerners, British. There were some really? British gentlemen in the men's side that had a separate cell. Anybody with money could pay to have a cell. Like this one woman, really? a garment factory owner, paid her way to share a cell, the cell with me. And I got a better diet. And basically anything I said was, you know, they treated it with respect. And they, you know, they were, the embassy came to make sure I was taken care of and well-fed. And the jail knew that. So they were very conscientious. So I... Did you have any... Uh clue as to how lucky you were, given the fact that you were already unlucky and that right. you got caught, um, did you have any clue that you it could have been so much worse? At the time, no. Okay. No, no I didn't have any idea. I mean, I, I was um, making friends and making the most of my time there. I learned the language because they didn't speak English very well. And so I learned to read and write it because they had books. They had, the women would bring their children with them. Because the husbands remarry and then the kids are first born and their life's in danger. I mean, it's that kind of a society. It's so f- crazy. What do you mean that the children are first born and then their lives are in danger? So everything is about inheritance, like land ownership and things like that. It's it's inherited and passed down. So like Bible, think of the Bible, you right. know. So the men would marry these women. They'd have a kid. And if the woman gets arrested for theft or framed for murder because they have their family has valuable land and somebody wants to develop on it and nobody wants to sell they would frame them for murder or some other horrible thing and send these women to prison and the women more often than not would choose to bring their children with them into the jail rather than leave them with their husband because he's going to remarry and the new wives there were some women in jail with me who had killed their senior wife's child wow because that means more inheritance for their own children. So that was, and that was bananas to me to go in there and have these children serving time with us. But it was also a nice little reprieve because the kids were cute and I got to play that with had, them. That had to have been, on some level, really soothing to have that that innocence around in this yeah. place that's just so, I would imagine, cynical and frightening. Well, they and they were well, they were praying. I mean, it's a Muslim country, which I didn't know anything about at the time, but. They were all doing their prayer. They got the call to prayer five times a day, and and they were all in a troublesome time. And that's when you go to your faith. That's when you reach out to your, you know, the. And, and were you somebody that had any faith before you went? And- we were raised evangelical Christians. Right. The Bible was the, the truth, and it was only the Bible, and we believed it. And we went to revival, to camp revivals and stuff. I mean, we were okay. So, so I mean, because I also went through that stuff in in Catholic grade school, but I. I was just kind of, it was, I felt like I was pushed into doing it. So, I mean, you could like be raised evangelical Christian and still your soul's, had, your soul's not into it. Yeah, I but doubted. But your soul was into it, kind of? Uh, not, I had questions because it was coming from my dad and my dad was doing what my dad was doing. Right. So, um. That's got to, that's got to fuck you, fuck you <laughs> It really screwed you, you know, That's a really so, bad message to give. So. God loves you, but we're going to put that on the back burner for about 15 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Know? And his Bible, his belt that he's painted us with was two inches wide and it was embossed with Jesus loves you in a rainbow. Are you kidding me? No, I'm not. Are you kidding? I'm not even kidding. It was we had we had J E and S U S imprinted on our. Are on you our skin. kidding? You think I no? 
Not at all. He, he, did he get that at the you got to be shitting me store? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I need something that I'm going to need to whoop my kids with. What would be the most ironic? <laughs> exactly. Oh, my well, God. Well, spare the rod and whatever that yeah. scripture is. He felt like he was really showing spare his Spare the lover. rod, spoil the child. Yeah, he yeah. felt like he was really serving us by spanking us. Oh, my God. So so you're in this prison, and had you been sentenced yet at this point? No. Um, I got, I'm trying to think, I, I, the timeline gets fuzzy. You know, it took a long time for my court dates to actually start they chased down they did find the guy who gave me the drugs trying mm. to cross into india and um we had an it's so easy to catch a rickshaw <laughs> you got a cop car yeah so easy to close in on him they said he was i mean i'm impressed with the doctor with the with the bangladesh police force for being able to find this guy hiding because yeah. that's it's mayhem in those in that country it's so populated it's so overpopulated yeah. but um Someone was, they must have had a, re- a reward or something, but they yeah. found him, brought him in. I identified him. He denied knowing me. Mm-hmm. But then after a couple of days of, I'm sure, horrible, horrible coercion, he admitted and pointed them out to the person who brought the drugs from, uh, I think they said he was brought in from Nigeria. Mm-hmm. So he had a third person that I had never laid eyes on that was coming to court every day with, a, with me for all the hearings. And um, it took some time. They, uh, they told me to say I didn't know what it was. Which I thought was ludicrous. Who told you to say this? My lawyer. Okay, and was it a, a, a Bangladeshi lawyer? It was a Bangladeshi okay. lawyer. The, the and, embassy, and he was a good. And he was a good guy. Seemed I, to be on your side. He tried to be. He the embassy gave me gave me a list, and it was you know alphabetical order. It was no particular order. They can't show any kind of preference to a one or the other, and so I picked an Abdul something, mm-hmm. and uh, not the sharpest tool in the shed. I came to find out later. I yeah. mean, I I had I don't know. I never needed a lawyer before. I mean, even with what stuff with my dad, I was not involved with with the legal aspects of it. So yeah, I mean, who could navigate that? You know, yeah. let alone an eighteen year old who's never been outside of Texas. Right, right. So so I had a kind of a, a dope for a lawyer. He he tried, and uh, we we did get my we we got my sentence. Um, it was not mur- it was not to be hanged, which they they could have done. Um, it was life, which in Bangladesh, uh, the life sentence there is is actually only thirty years. That's right. the signal of their, their life expectancy in that country. Is wow. Pretty short. So uh, I was, I guess, three and a half years into it when they well, three years I guess when they finally sentenced me, and uh, and then we went to the high court, and the high court I went and testified in front of the high court, and I was wearing tip shawar kameez, the traditional outfit for the country, and I spoke. In Bengali to the judges and told them, you know, I was very sorry, and I, you know, can I. You re- re- can you remember how to say what it is that you said in, in Bangladeshi? <laughs> it's been so long. I can I can understand. Is, it, is that the right word, Bangladeshi? It's Bengali. 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 I'm sorry. That's Bangladeshi. Also yeah. works. Um, Bengali. I haven't spoken it very much since I got back, but I when I when I hear it, like yeah. the shop owners in New yeah. York are um, predominantly that from. That must blow their mind. And I hear, I'm like. You're from Bangladesh, and they're like, "Yeah." It's like I, and I can tell them, "You know, shot a child, but shot Bangladesh and mother Basha Kordesi." And that means I lived in Bangladesh for four and a half years. And they're like, "Oh, where? Kotai?" And I say, "Um," <laughs> <laughs> I said, um, "I'm like, you won't believe me." And which is, "I'm like a bishesh You won't believe me. And I said, "Bishesh <laughs> Why wouldn't I believe you? And I said, uh, "I was in the Kendrio Karagar, which is the central prison." And they all just look at me. No, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, um, so I, I, I testified and said, and they asked me, which was really sweet. The judges were kind of cute. These three white-haired men, and they were just like, "So you're, you're, um, you're 18 now." 
And of course, by then I was 22. I said, mm. and so it's taken three and a half years for your case to even be heard. And that well, three and a half years for you waiting to find out if you get life. Well, yeah, they at three and a half years they sentenced me to life. I was going to hearings for about a year. I see. And it was a big to do when I went to court. And I had braces, and I went to the medical college to get my braces tightened, and that was a big to do. I mean, it was. I guess I shouldn't skim over this because it is it's surreal. There were people lining up the sidewalk on the on the for the entering into the prison or entering into the courthouse, and. They were men with bouquets of roses because they'd seen my picture in the newspaper. And I have Indian features, and people often mistake me for being from, from the Southeast Asian continent. And so, and I, I was young and cute, and so they were proposing to me and were petitioning with my lawyer to be able to marry me and save me. And then we would, you know, hoping I would take them back to America once I was free, kind of a thing. So I had going to court as a, a you know, to be convicted of heroin smuggling. And I've got literally throngs of young men and mothers of young men waving and calling out to me, cheering on me like I was a movie star on the red carpet. <laughs> it bananas. Bizarre. Bananas. Uh, uh, throngs of people who want, still want to use you, but in a less creepy way than you've been used. Right, right, right. Your, your My whole, whole life, life yeah. yeah. The American. They want to use the American card. <laughs> you know, that's the beauty of life is you're, you never ceases to, you never cease to encounter uh, a new way that somebody wants to use or manipulate <laughs> so you. There's always some new twist to yeah. it. Yeah. So, um, but I had, I went, I went to court, you know, several times and, um, the men, well, typically in that culture, if there's a man and a woman accused together in a case, it's, you know, they were intimately involved and committed this crime together. And, you know, and so that was assumed and encouraged by the jerk that was uh, accused with me, the, the Tony. And so I would go to court and they would be like, you know, do you two want some time alone? Do you want to be in a salvage? Oh, I almost they had like, to turn your stomach. I was like, oh, my God, do you know this man ruined my life? I'd never laid yeah. eyes on him until yeah. a day I was arrested, you know. really. And people ask me now, like, have, where's, have you heard where Tony is? But I was like, I don't give a rat's ass where that guy is. I hope he's rotting in prison still, you know. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, I understand there's a curiosity because he's, he's part of the story when I tell it on, on National Geographic. And so, I mean. I guess technically I could care, but I really, really don't care. Right. <laughs> and I've never asked or looked for it. But um, so went to high court and they asked me to lie about my age in order to be able to help me. Like, cause if you're only 18 now, then you were underage when you were arrested and we would be forced to let you go. I was like, no, I'm I'm 22. I said my ID will will show that the the, the American government can can confirm that. Like, oh, paperwork can be forged. We wouldn't be able to rely on paperwork alone if you told us that you're on. I was like, really? And I said, no, I really am flattered, but I was not going to let, I wasn't going to Do you feel like off. they were trying to lure you into a trap? Because then if they could show that you were lying, that would make it worse? No, I think my, I think they were really, they, there was a lot of sympathy for me in the media. Yeah. And uh, I think they really were looking for a way to let me get out of jail. I see, because the, the, the I would have thought that public opinion would have been hanger. You, there was there was an element of that, yeah. but it was not from from what I gathered, which you know my my perspective I'm sure was was skewed, but it was a lot of popularity. There were a lot of people who thought you know the American girl she's so young and she's so innocent and let's let's you know, and unless you had a family who was serving time for similar crimes, you were very sympathetic. Describe what what you were feeling and thinking when you were thinking, I'm going to be in here the rest of my life. What what is what is that like? Well, when I when I was arrested and I first heard from the embassy that they weren't going to be able to get me extradited, 
um, I said, well, look, you have to get me out of here. I'm going to kill myself. I am not going to stay in this jail. It was horrible. I didn't speak the language at that time. It smelled awful. You know, these people were just And you weird. were in the good part of the And of I was in prison. my own cell. But yeah. I still, I, you know, <laughs> when I went in, the, the, the head woman in the jail, you know, spent a lot of time examining my chest like I might have been hiding something mm-hmm. in my boobs. <laughs> I was like, really? She spent a lot of time. I was like, Oh, really? Awkward. She was just kind of getting getting off. A little friendly, yeah. yeah. And so I, was like, I just, I wanted, I was creeped out. I wanted to leave. Yeah. And um, and then when they sentenced me to 30 years, um, I actually knew that was going to happen a few days beforehand because they interrupted another drug case in the middle of its trial, mid-witness, and issued a sentence of 30 years because... The embassy said you have to have a precedent of setting of sentencing a woman from your country for a similar case before you can sentence an American to whatever. I see. So they they stopped this woman's hearing and charged her, sentenced her to life. She got off on a technicality, but the it set the precedent. It set the precedent. So I knew I was. She came back. She said, "I have good news and I have bad news." And I was like, "What?" She goes, "Well, bad news is you're going to get life." The good news is, is I'm going home on a technicality because I just had the precedent for you, and it was in the middle of my hearings. She really said that to you? Mm -hmm. Did you kick her in the face? (laughs) No. No. She was kind of a tough Did you strangle her with her sarong? (laughs) No. She came in putting her... She was grinning as she's folding her... They they have a... Is sarong even the right term? Sorry. Sorry. Yeah, Yeah. her sorry. She had the convict sorry on, and she's pleading it and just grinning from ear to ear. She's, I'll be out of here in a month at the most. What a bitch. (sighs) Yeah. How do you... (laughs) <laughs> oh my god it wasn't anything it wasn't our fault you yeah. know I mean I, I'm, I'm pretty good at not blaming the messenger yeah and and you know let's not forget too uh, your complicity in this you know the fact that you yes you you were somebody who um, had experienced a tough childhood and and had you know certainly been taught a lot of fucked up lessons but you still chose to to oh, do this stuff, absolutely. And, and, yeah. and you know, I I don't want to I don't want to gloss over that and make it make it sound like um, you're the you're the victim in all this. And right. I don't get the sense that you feel that way no, either. No, no. Yeah. I mean, I was surrounded by women who were in fact victims and had yeah. been framed and had been. I mean, there was the occasional actual murderer who would have described killing the four year old son of her senior wife. But there were a lot of people who were there for. You know, had not done since eighty year old woman could barely lift her arm above her head, accused of killing a man who was thirty years old. She couldn't what, have done it. What What did that feel like, being around all of that, all those sad stories? It was It was um, It was very humbling, and um, I wrote like I wrote a poem about one woman because her her um, her kids had were taken away from her and she she couldn't take care of them and she, they took her land away and it was it was very humbling and it gave me a perspective on you know. My my life had a lot of crap in it, but it was not that kind of crap, like not losing my family crap or not having no food on the table and, right. you know, wrongly imprisoned and taken away from infants and having the women could only keep their kids to a certain age, even in the jail. And then they went taken to an orphanage and the oh. bureaucracy was impossible to get your kids oh out of God. after that. So even if they got out of jail, the chances of reuniting with their children was very remote. And, and, and uh, does Bangladesh have the caste system like uh, India does? Yes. So, yeah. So, if you're from the lower caste, you're you're less than a citizen, if even that. Right. Yeah. So, it was... Um, I got a sense of perspective. And I, and I learned that there's more than one... I had always had an issue with hell growing up with the, the, mm-hmm. race, the religion of my dad. You know, like, if, if you're not a Christian, you know, the way, the truth, the lie, there's no one gets to the gate by, to, to heavens through me. But I thought, you know... There's a lot of people who aren't Christian. 
And I've known some pretty crappy Christians <laughs> mm-hmm. looking at my dad. And I just didn't think that God was populating the planet with people to fill hell. I didn't think hell needed fuel. I feel like that right. that was just not something that God would do. So when I went over there and I met all the people who were not Christian, there was maybe two Christian women in the whole time I was there. Um, there were several Hindus, but even that was a very small minority. And I thought, you know, these women are suffering and they're praying and they're, you know, living with dignity living and, with and dignity. compassion for each other. Exactly. And yeah. so I, um, and it was funny. They said they would do their prayers and I would ask what they were doing. They were doing, they were fasting one year. And I was like, what are, why aren't you eating? There's no food coming. What's going on with that? Like mine's the only food coming. And uh, they said, oh no, this is our sacred fast. And I was like, what do you mean a sacred fast? And they said, well, you Americans don't have this. You don't have the discipline. <laughs> yeah. I'm a Texas teenager who's just left home and flown across the con- the world to yeah. come here. And you've just thrown down the gauntlet. I was like, all right, what do you have to do? Bring it. Really? <laughs> I learned the prayers in, in in Arabic. I learned how to read the Arabic alphabet for the Quran with the little vowel sounds above and below it. And I did prayer five times a day. I fasted from dawn till dusk. And I went through the whole, you know, singing into certain nights that you're supposed to be up all night singing. And uh, I was like, okay, I've done it. And they said, so now you're truly Muslim. And I said, no, you know, I I appreciate the value of focusing on your on on you know the supreme being that you you know the on Allah. I think I think that's valuable. I said, but um, yeah, I think Christianity has a direct line that doesn't revolve doesn't require all the ritual. I don't think I was, was it like, kind of a welcome distraction that, that gave you do. something to focus your mind on other something than going, to, I'm fucked. <laughs> yes, something to do with my time. Maybe. I'm fucked. Oh, great. Rice again. <laughs> How many I, times did you think that? Rice, I, really? I didn't used to like rice as a kid, and now I love it. Like, I, I, I make, I have an it awesome... doesn't remind you of that prison? No, I love it. I love rice. I love Indian food. Like, if I go Indian I, food's the best. If I eat an Indian meal, I'm full for the day. Like, I'm, it makes me happy. The flavors make me happy. I have, I have no, nothing really hurtful or upset about actual what happened when I was there. Like, I recognized that I deserved to be there. I walked into that. And there were people that wanted to help. And I could, like, this missionary I'd never laid eyes on was coming to see me once a month. I went through all kinds of trouble to be able to come and see me and help me out for no reason. Bill Richardson was the congressman of New Mexico at the time. He heard my story when he came to DACA for some other purpose. Bill Richardson. Bill Richardson. And uh, the embassy people had, you know, we're all familiar with my story. They were all sending me little goodies. I got these big gift boxes of goodies once a month from books and shower gel and stuff. So, so it, it sounds like there wasn't ever really a point where you felt forgotten in there because so often that's that when somebody gets locked up abroad, oftentimes there's not connection with the embassy and they feel like I'm just withering away and nobody knows that. Yeah, that was no, not, that your, you never had that feeling. No, not at all. Okay. I was very, very fortunate in that regard. And that was the... F- I was the first American ever arrested in, Dhaka, in Bangladesh, ever. Mm. And so it was a novelty. And I had a couple of um, foreign service agencies. It was their first assignment. And they got sent there because it was kind of a a good training ground before mm-hmm. you go to the other countries. And so the, having a prisoner there was a whole new thing, but it was part of the consular's jobs. And so they came to see me. And they were really sweet. I mean, they were green. They were wet behind the ears, too. So they weren't really sure what they were supposed to do. And I was, I like to think I was charming. Yeah. <laughs> so I got, I, they they would bring me all kinds of goodies. It was right. like Christmas every month. Right. So um, I forget where I was. Yeah, I'm sorry I interrupted that's you okay. because I thought that was so important to interrupt you. No, that's I okay. Do that, that, I do that a lot. That's okay. No, but I have, I've had people say, you know, that the, 
They've had other. Oh, Bill Richardson. You're talking about Bill Richardson. So Bill Richardson heard about me from the embassy folks, and he they said, you know, we want to do something for her, but we can't because America has the war on drugs, and we can't do anything on her behalf. But as American, as a member of the American government, you could ask their government for a pardon. And so he did. He says, "Yeah, let's do it. What do we have to do? Let's get this. Let's get this girl home." And uh, again, my congressmen and senators were getting letters from my parents and were non-responsive. So I have huge appreciation for Bill Richardson. Mm-hmm. And uh, he sent me this postcard. That, you know, I've heard your story, and we're going to get you home soon. And I like put that. I was like, "Yeah, sure." Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had zero. I mean, I just didn't think. How could you? Why would you? July fourth, they gave their their they read their statement. They said, "You know, while we feel for this young woman." The law is uh, not meant to be sympathetic, and according to the laws of this country, she has in fact broken them and uh, is appropriately sentenced to life for her crimes. But we would ask the government to take a look at this, and we would encourage her lawyer to pursue, you know, some sort of clemency from the prime minister or the president, because that is what they are there for. I see. And so, and that. That was actually much better because I think I have, no, I mean, having a pardon is better than having a, a shortened conviction. Like I would have gotten out maybe a little bit right. sooner, right? but I actually ended up with no record. I didn't, I didn't know how long it would take for the pardon. I thought mm-hmm. it would take a lot longer, but Bill Richardson came back again real, well, like they advertised that he was coming again in another week. And I was like, <gasps> something in my head said, oh my God, he's coming to take me home. Mm-hmm. I just, I suddenly knew like yeah. there's this caucus, whatever he says he's coming for. He's coming to take me home. I just knew it. And this embassy guys came and said, you know, if you were to get your pardon and if you were to go home then this would be your schedule and they had this whole this like minute by moment schedule and I was like yeah if wink wink nudge nudge I'm so going I'm so out of here you know I was mm-hmm. I had a couple of days of just being ecstatically knowing they took my picture for my passport because my passport had gotten stolen shocker <laughs> so then you you get released you come back home to America you start living your life am, am I skipping over uh, anything that, that you feel is uh the flight home uh, was kind of crazy. Yeah. Because I was panicked. I was like, I have been in prison for four and a half years, and I'm going home. And it was like my youngest brother when I left in 92 was 12. And I was coming home to a 17 year old, 16, 17 year old boy, like man almost. Yeah. And um, I had, my, they had sent me some pictures, and I didn't recognize my own siblings. Like they were all, they'd all grown up. And, um, I didn't have any skills. I hadn't worked. I mean, I just couldn't imagine what I was going to do. It was very, I was very scared. And I was missing my friends I'd made in jail because I, every day I would wake up and there was a couple of older women who would come and look at me and they would, they would be praying and looking at me and through my little window in my cell. And I asked her, I said, why, what are you doing? And she goes, you're just so beautiful. You're like this light in this jail. And I just like to look at you when you're sleeping. You're so beautiful. Yes. And I was... I was thinking, I'm not going to have that when I go home. You know, it was so wow. many things I just was missing. And they would come. I had people. How did that make you feel when, when she said that? I just, it was surreal. I can't, I just, I I don't know what it would have been like, I guess, not to hear it. Because I heard it so many times. Like they said, I looked like one of their Hindu god goddesses. And uh, I had letters, the few letters that came through from, from uh, local men just going on and on about how beautiful I was and I should be in movies and I, should, I thought you know I in the middle of just being really down on myself for being so stupid and I mean to be there in the, in the first place and losing all of this time and not seeing my brothers and sisters and and I was 
worried more for them missing me and knowing that that was hurting them than I was about my myself. I mean, I was I was where I was supposed to be. I screwed up. This is why. This is what I get. But I also knew that I was the big sister and that they looked for looked to me. And I got letters from my little brother and my little sister, and I could they were I could tell they were hurting, and that that was harder on me than what I was actually going through. Because I'm and going through there was hearing how gorgeous I was and how smart I was and learning a new language. And I did. I learned the language pretty quickly, and I felt proud of myself. I got the sense of I had a really strong sense of me as an individual person, an entity separate from my family, an entity separate from the people around me. Because I was I wasn't one of them, mm-hmm. but I certainly felt a connection with them, and I I just became aware, really self aware. You know, this is who I am. I was reading some things and. For the first time in my life, I felt like I had permission to disagree with something I read. Because I always was, in school, you're supposed to, this is what you learn, this is what you disagree with it. You agree, you agree, you agree. And then I was reading, like, you know, I disagree with that. (laughs) You know, I'd always had issues with hell in the Bible. That was my only one thing that I knew I disagreed with. But I got to a point where I read so many things and I had formed some opinions. Well, like, what things were you reading that you were disagreeing with? There were some philosophy books I got. Um, so you were just devouring books while you were. Oh yes, the, yeah. anything the embassy people read, and they got they they handed yeah. it back to me, you know. And um, fiction, like I read a I read a, I got a book that I was I, I didn't like it. I was like, and I don't yeah. have to finish it. Yeah. <laughs> like, I am not enjoying Clive Barker. I'm yeah. disgusted. <laughs> I'm going to stop. I <laughs> I think that you should start. You should have other girls go through this, and it would be like your Bradford Business School, and you show them walking <laughs> out of the Bangladesh prison. <laughs> She's a she's a jail grad. Yes, I learned how to question (laughs) during my commuted uh, life sentence on smuggling Uh, drugs. My dad came when I came back. My dad said, "You know what? Jail was good for you." He goes, "Listen to you arguing and and standing up for yourself." He goes, "It really did you some good." I just you know, and who beat me down? You jerk. (laughs) Did you believe him? Are we able to see that when he said that the jail had done you some some good? My immediate response, I remember being feeling very good. Like, yeah. oh, thanks. Yeah. You know, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, I didn't condemn him for being the person who beat me down at the time, but I thought back about it. I was like, you know, yeah. You know, it, it, that to me is one of the, one of the things in life that is so, um, it's so easy to overlook is the fact that really, really tough stuff it can be the best thing that ever happens to us sometimes, but when we're going through it, it's so miserable and it's so hard. And I'm struck by by hearing your story. The, the two things that kind of stick out to me um, both involve patience. You know, your the, the the mistake that you made of of smuggling the drugs. To me, it's not that you were a bad person or that you were a a, a, a not smart person. It was that you you lacked the patience to believe that some good stuff in life was going to come your way, that you were you were going to be able to to fulfill some type of dream or educate yourself or anything like that. And you thought, I've got to force it. I've got to break my moral code to make this happen because it's not going to it's not going to happen. And then the patience of you being in this this prison um and using it to to um, kind of expand expand your your mind. I suppose it was easier in that in that your prison was not as hellish as as it could have been, and you had these people that were were caring for you. But I know that just kind of the the word patience just kind of strikes jumps out at me. Does that does that? Uh... I guess I have I have 
I consider myself an incredibly impatient person. Yeah. I have, um, <laughs> my poor mother, when I was in dance practice after school, if she was late picking me up, there was hell to pay. It I just made me so angry. I hate waiting, and I hate making people wait because I know how much I hate waiting. So patience has never been a good And then I have friends that say, you know, Leah, you put up with things for so long. I can't believe you don't think you're patient. And so I guess, I guess it depends on what form the waiting is taking. Like if I'm consciously aware that I'm actually waiting for something, yeah. and I can't take it. But if I'm trudging through something that's maybe not necessarily a nice situation, but just right. going through something... I have a lot more patience. So when you go through something today, do you ever look back on your time in in the, in that prison uh, and draw on any of that for strength, or is it something you just kind of uh, put behind you and don't really think about? Um, when I'm going through, I tend to have a really high positive attitude, and people are like, you know, God, you're so upbeat. And I know that I'm looking back, and it could be worse. I mean, I, I count the years. I would technically still be, I just just be getting out maybe of, of, of prison. So I, every day is, everything's better than being behind bars in a third world country away from my family. So um, when I'm going through something hard, that does come up. I, and I do think about that. It's it's um, it's still very immediate yeah. appreciation for what I have and where I'm at. Um, to me, one of the benefits of having gone through stuff that that's painful is... I know that there's always some something beautiful or good, even even in the worst circumstances. If I can really try to find the good or the positive, there's always something in it. And uh, do you feel like that is is something that you're more attuned to now that you're able to? I I am more attuned to that. There's something good um, about it, or that there's a reason it's happening. Mm -hmm. You know, this doesn't have to necessarily be good. But it will be good for me. Mm -hmm. And I think that that has helped me because um, I use the metaphor of a diamond. I like that. It's, yeah. it's a black piece of coal and it's not attractive. And it goes through incredible, incredible pressure, squeezed, squeezed, squeezed to become this gorgeous diamond. Mm -hmm. And I think that we humans in our development, we have to go. I mean, no, you don't have to. I find that when we go through the storm, when we weather storm after storm after storm, and just keep coming through it. I think it just hones and brightens and adds to the sparkle of who we can be if we choose to use that as a growth and not as a knocking you down. I mean, you hit a wall and you can choose that that's helping you to get over the wall or you can say you're going to lay there or mm -hmm. dig under the wall and just get lower and lower. And I find that because of what happened and getting out of jail was so miraculous and I came out with a pardon and I've had some pretty wonderful things happen in my life that I choose to see obstacles they suck. They're never fun. But if I recognize it, it's going to be good for me to have gone through this. Like, yeah. there's got to be a reason I have to go through this. I'm just going to get through this and get to the next thing. Yeah. And that's been... A well, I, I want to thank you for, for uh, being my guest and my uh, opening up and talking about some stuff that I know uh, couldn't couldn't have been easy. Um, but I, I appreciate it. And uh, it would probably be inappropriate to ask you if you wanted to go get high. <laughs> I don't do it. I don't do it anymore. But how ironic would that be if we then went? We went and oh boy, that was stressful. Let's go get loaded. Then we got, then we got busted. But uh, thank you. Uh, is there any um, thing that you'd like to plug? A website or a Facebook thing? Or there's a no fan I have a fan page on Facebook. I just topped um, 900 fans on my Facebook fan awesome. page, which is really exciting. So okay. if you go to Leah McCord, there's uh, my personal profile, and then there's the the public 
person profile it's a fan page okay it's a picture of me and the girl who who played me in the reenactments on locked up abroad so yeah so i fan me send me questions i'm working on writing my book so if you have things you'd like to hear more about that's feeding my my content of my book so look i love questions i love knowing what else people want to know well i'm i'm uh touched by uh the amount of forgiveness that you've that you've had for you know not only the people that hurt you in your in your childhood but uh but for yourself that's a really really beautiful quality for a for a human being to have and really important i think one of the best tools to go through life with is being able to forgive yourself and other people so that's important yeah yeah, yeah. thanks leah thank you my pleasure uh, as I said before, uh, this is where I thought the interview had uh, had ended, and then uh, we had a conversation out in the hallway. There was something that she felt like she still wanted to say, but wasn't sure if it was appropriate for the show. And I said, "No, I think it's totally appropriate for the show." So we came back in, and here's where we uh, we pick that up. So, um, the the age at, at which your your father uh, began. Uh, molesting you was was what i think i was eight seven and a half or eight uh-huh. and uh it went on for four a little over four years uh-huh. so um at first it didn't feel like anything right i mean at eight eight years old you don't have those responses your body's just doesn't have the sexual reactions but at one point it actually i remember it actually felt good and i actually had you know um a release you know, a, a climax. My first climax was like eleven or twelve years old with my it, father. It had, it had to have been very confusing. It was really odd, and I and I I just thought, whoa, that that felt good. And um, but what was your 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 emotion? Was it all positive, or was it a, a conflict? I felt really confused. Like I know that that's what he had wanted, and his response, because he could tell, was. Um, was was very excited. He was very proud of himself. He was very excited that it, it, it you know that's that's what's supposed to happen. That's that's normal, baby. And then, I um, I had known because we had we had turned him in a couple of times before that. We my my brother, my older brother, was the one that was like he's not supposed to be touching you. He's not supposed to be doing that. We're taking him to the police. We're getting out of here. My brother was always we were running away in the middle of the night, and my mom would come and find us. And so I knew that I was not supposed to be enjoying it. It was. It was wrong and it was bad, and I felt really, I felt really conflicted at enjoying it, and so I, I never actually went after it at first, and then there was one instance where I, you know, I couldn't sleep, and and we were at my grandparents' house, and we were on a fold-out sofa, and he placed himself next to me, laying on the bed next to me, and I, um, I instigated it. Um, I wanted, I, I couldn't stop thinking about, you know, how good it felt. And I, I wanted to feel that. And so I, you know, feigned sleep, rolled over, put myself in a position that I knew he would start doing what he likes to do. And, um, and he did. And then I went to sleep. And then later on, several months later, when we turned him in for the final time, and we had to say something was in Dallas that we chose to turn him in. And we had, I was supposed to say what happened in Dallas. What did he do to you? And I recount, I retold that story, but without, the fact that I had started it. Mm-hmm. And so when they, I went to therapy and they said, you know, it's not your fault. He's the, he's the, um, he's the bad one. He should know better. He shouldn't do that to you. You can't blame yourself. I nodded my head and, oh yeah, sure. Right. And in my, the back of my mind, I was convicting myself because no, I actually did start that. 
you know, I wanted that and I enjoyed that and I am bad because I did start that. And years and years and years, I mean, it was just a couple of years ago that I actually saw something that hit home and then I want people who have been through that, like you started out getting abused before you knew what it was, before you had any reaction and you're programmed to accept that and then it starts to feel good, that's, it's not your fault for enjoying what naturally feels good. That's biology. But, um, your body doesn't have a sense of morality. Right. So, um, but I still, I mean, we still feel this guilt. We carry this guilt for those, any of us who, any of you out there who have ever purposely kind of placed yourself or instigated an incident with your abuser. And I saw the movie Towelhead with Tony Collette and, um, I think it was Thomas Jane. I can't think of his name, but the young girl seduces her neighbor. She can tell he kind of likes her, and she goes over and she seduces him. And uh, Tony Collette picks up that there's something inappropriate happening. Her character does, and she brings her over to the house, and she's telling her, you know, it's not your fault. You know, he should. He is wrong. What he did is wrong. And uh, and she's like, no, but I wanted it, which was very brave for her to say because I I know I was never. I would never have said that to someone when I was at that age, and it had happened. But you didn't start out wanting it. Well, no. No, I didn't start out wanting it. But the, the, the thing that Tony Collette said to her afterwards, it registered with me as an adult hearing it and thinking back. She says, no, honey, he is an adult, and you are a child. And no matter what you did or said, he should have known better. It is his place to protect you and not behave inappropriately with you. He should not have done that. Right. And so I thought, yeah, if my 10 or 11 year old nephews, because I've got a couple, I've got a few, were to, you know, come into their puberty and were to, you know, watch me or try and start something with me, never in a million years. Right. Absolutely. I mean, just ludicrous, the concept, the thought of it. And so I, I got this sense of, oh, why can't I feel that way towards myself? Like, why? Why did that never register with me? Like people kept saying it's not your fault, but they weren't realizing that I was blaming myself because I had actually kind of wanted it and finally started enjoying it. And so I think a lot, I don't know how many others are out there, but that is the thing you need to remind yourself as an adult person looking back, look at the, the youngsters at the age you were when you were abused and when you started liking it even. If someone of that age came to you, would you ever? And how wrong is that? Right. And recognize that that is what your abuser did wrong, is that they went ahead when they absolutely had no place. Right. Because that the adult knows that there are ramifications to it, that, that it's a lot of different stuff is mixed up in there, that that child is probably wanting for attention and a lot of things in other ways. And, and the adult knows that... that all of that stuff, but the child doesn't know that. No. The child just knows something. Somebody's paying attention to me, or something feels good physically, but they don't know uh, the full package that it's coming in. And you can't, yeah, you can't judge. Right. Um, that's a really profound and, and brave thing for you to say, and I really, really appreciate that uh, that you said that because I imagine there's a lot of people out there um, that are still blaming themselves for something and that forgiving forgiving yourself is so so important if if you're ever gonna uh, feel better about yourself right. or how you feel about other people right yeah yeah and I and yeah and so I've and I've I've learned that the other thing about the abuse from my dad and knowing that my dad loves me 
and he did this horrible thing to me. And it has led to me in relationships, people who are treating me less than the way they should be. I keep uh, giving them the benefit of the doubt that they really do love me more than they really do. Mm-hmm. And not letting their actions tell me how they feel about me. So that's been something I'm having to teach myself how, over and over how again. How do you set boundaries, though, w- when it hurts you the way those people treat you? Or, or, or I should say, are you able to set boundaries when... I am... Um, because I think there's a certain point at which it's okay to you know, have empathy for towards them and take their actions with a grain of salt but at a certain point we have to draw a line and say okay this is uh, this is where this this is the end yes yeah i'm constantly reminding myself to set that boundary Mm -hmm. and i you know i keep um i almost got married to someone who was basically a project you know i was trying to prove to myself that i and i i just said no and i had my sister-in-law and my brother we all talked they said leah really why are you why are you considering marrying this person considering how they treat you and the things they say to you I was like, yeah. Did you think you wanted to change that person? Or, um, or something about the way they treated you felt familiar and comfy? Felt familiar was kind of the the bad things. The, the things I thought were wrong with myself, they thought was wrong with me. And, and it kind of went on and on about it. She thought, oh, this person's <laughs> this a person no, totally, they, they know they me get, so well. They, they, they get, get me. me. <laughs> they get me. They know I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> and rather than lifting me up and recognizing some of you know, the, the great yeah. things that I've had people you know comment on about me, I was like, you know, I... I really need to find the person that's that's more about what's great about me thank and not about what's hung up on me. God, thank God yeah. you did, and you held <laughs> off on having kids and not bringing kids in to do a dysfunctional oh, yeah. marriage. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, uh, I'm still alone, but I'm, I, I feel confident that I'm better alone than I would have been with either of the two folks I'd considered marrying when I was much younger. Yeah, so many people get into horrible relationships because yeah. they're terrified of being alone. They think it's a comment on who they are as a person. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it can yeah. be such a such a mistake. True. <laughs> Many thanks to Leah McCord for that great and brave interview. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, if you feel so disposed, go to iTunes, give us a good rating, write something nice, nice and uh, that, that boosts our, our ranking, brings more people to the show. Um, remember, this is a tough time of year. I have personally cried about eight buckets of tears in the last three weeks, uh, but I know it's not reality. It's just, just my brain. So uh, if you're out there and you feel stuck, You ain't alone. Thanks for listening. 